0: Um, this is our second week, and I. Um, so, the last, today and yesterday, we, we set up a table on the concourse for O Day, is that what it's called? Um, and so, it's been a very busy day. And so, I'll just confess that. That I um, don't have my head wrapped around this lesson like I normally like, so I hope that you guys will show me grace and patience. Uh, I promise that I'll teach no longer than an hour and 15 minutes, and and you should get something out of it. So we'll see. I just figure I'll just keep teaching to you guys. Really, uh, really seem like you're growing in the faith, and then I'll stop. Then, uh, but uh, but we we are in a series of Acts, and we only looked at the first two verses of Acts last week. And, and um, it's it's this semester we're gonna be going through Acts chapter eight, verse three. Uh, so we will be covering the first eight chapters. And it's called Unleashed because we're looking at this moment. It's a very unique moment in history. It's when the disciples were unleashed to the world. It's when the followers of Christ for the first time went out on their own and started sharing their faith. They didn't have authority figures. Um, they were trying to figure out what does my life look like now that I'm a Jesus follower and Jesus isn't around. And we said one of the great things about Acts for you guys, for college students, is um, for the first time in your life and it might be this is the third year or whatever, but for the first general time in your life that that you don't have your parents around, you don't have your youth minister around, you don't have your preacher around, you're on your own setting your own schedule, deciding what degree you're going to study, deciding how you're going to spend your finances, deciding how you're going to handle your dating and relationships, you're deciding the entire kind of scope of your life. And if you're a believer, the question before you is, what does it look like for you to believe in Jesus And be a college student. What is it like for you to believe in Jesus and start a career? What is it like for you to be a a, a Jesus follower? And for you to start thinking about marriage and a family. To start thinking about the friends you're around. To start thinking about how you're going to spend the time of your life. And we get to kind of listen in to what the disciples, how they're answering some of those same questions. They're disciples. They're out there trying to figure out what's it like. They live life in a culture where most people don't give God the time of day. And we get to listen in on that and learn from it. And I said last week, the most important question you can ask as we begin this is, is it worth it to listen to Luke tell you the story of the early church? Now, where are the disciples when we pick up in Acts chapter 1? What's going on? We talked about this last week. What's, what's happened? Okay, what happened just a few weeks before? It's really important crucified and then what happened next? He rose from the dead. you guys are smart you 're theologians, yes, he rose from the dead and here 's the thing uh, a few A few weeks ago we went to uh, a group of us went to a conference. Um, some of our leaders, some of your community leaders, and I uh, went to a conference in Texas. It was uh, roughly sixty hours ish of driving oh, it was more than, yeah, it was actually like seventy hours of driving. It was great, uh, great um, and and on the way back though. Uh, we decided to stop and watch Dunkirk. Who've seen, who has seen that? Okay. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. And, and towards the end, um, if you don't know, like the British forces are on a beachhead, uh, on a beach, and, the, and they're surrounded by the German forces. And, and it really is a point at which hundreds of thousands of British soldiers could be killed, and the war could effectively be over. Huh? Oh. And, um, and, and they don't know how they're going to rescue them. And, the, and there's, it's just brilliant how it builds tension, and then it gets to the point where um, you have all these fishing boats. It's kind of private fishing boats from Britain. But it's just historical. It's not like a spoiler alert. You know, if you had any history or watched History Channel, you should know the ending. All right. Uh, Britain won. The Nazis lost. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Uh, but the, all these fishing boats arrive, and they take the soldiers away. And here's the thing. If you've seen it, how much longer does the movie last after the point where, where uh, the fishing boats kind of come to rescue everybody? Just a few minutes. It's almost, it's almost annoying. Because this big event happens, and a few minutes later, it's over with. But most movies are like that. If you think of your favorite movie, it kind of builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it kind of, all the odds are stacked against the hero. And then the hero does this amazing thing. The main person or the main people do this amazing thing. And, and whenever that happens, kind of the climax of the story, it's minutes until the thing's over with. That's what you expect. Now, if you're a disciple, you have followed Jesus around, and people are kind of listening. The religious leaders don't like him. They're rejecting Him. And then, the people turn against Him in Passion Week, in the last week of His life, they shout, Crucify Him. He's crucified. You think the story's over and He raises from the dead. And if this is a movie, it's just about over. If this is a movie and you're the character of the movie, you don't have much time left. There's not much left for you to do. You have a few funny lines. You wrap it up. You hug each other. You cry. You're excited. End credits, right? And if you're a disciple... (gasps) This is what you're thinking. The God that we've fallen around, the God that's been claiming to be the Son of God, he just rose from the dead, right? Game, set, match, it's over with. And by the way, if, 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 uh, if you understand a little about the Old Testament, they have some pretty good reasons to believe this, because Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, Jesus is implying the last days are here. In the Old Testament, prophecy after prophecy says, when the Messiah comes, when the last days are here, guess what happens? God completely wins. You just enjoy His kingdom. Scholar, put up Isaiah 2. Okay, thank you. That's really shifting. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to interpret this for you. Uh, it's in Hebrew. The, actually, I can't do it now. Uh, the last... Okay, I'm going to turn in my Bible. <laughs> uh God' is doing a great job. Uh, this is not his fault. Uh, this, I'll take blame for this. I don't know what's going on. Um, Isaiah chapter two. OK, good. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. So the highest peak in all the world will be the Lord's temple where the Lord dwells, where people come and worship Him. uh, It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His path. The law will go out from Zion. (sighs) Don't worry about it. Oh, What? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I don't care. I'm not <laughs> The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, nation will not take up sword against nation, nor they train for war anymore. Notice that the law is going to go everywhere to all the people. Notice that the Lord is enthroned as the highest pl- uh, in, in the temple and the highest place of all the world. In other words... What there's, what, the, the understanding of the Jewish people is that when the Messiah comes and the last days are here, that's it. Curtain call. God's won. The enemies have lost. And so if you look at Acts chapter 1, which will not be up on the screen, thankfully. Uh, otherwise this would be a very long Devo. Not that it's not going to be long anyway. Uh, that's the mentality they have. The greatest part of the movie has happened. We're wrapping this up. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. By the way, it's just for free, but that does my heart good because faith has not come easy to me. And, and it, is, it, it, it lets me know that Jesus is patient when you need him to just reassure you that this is true, Right? Because uh, faith doesn't come to easy I know people that it's like, Jesus rose from the dead. He, they wouldn't have to see it. You know, they'd be a disciple. Like, yeah, we believe it. Whatever, let's go on. And I'd be like, Jesus, show me again. <laughs> Tell me again what happened. Walk through a door again. Let's you know, do a couple of more tricks. Because I have a hard time believing this. And Jesus was patient with the disciples. And He showed them many convincing proofs so that they knew that, that He had really been raised from the dead. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And spoke about the kingdom of God. I and mean, that's what we're reading about in Isaiah 2, 2-4, through 4, is that God's kingdom, God's reign is going to come. Every Jewish person expected this. They hated the fact that the Romans were over them. They hated the fact that God's people were not reigning. They hated the fact that they had to ask permission for various things. And that the Romans had a say in who the high priest would be. And Jesus is talking to these disciples who know something amazing just happened, that the Messiah is here, he's been risen from the dead, he's been vindicated by God, and he's talking about how God's kingdom is going to come over all the earth. And he tells them on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse six. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which is a weird question, unless you understand the mindset. God's promised his kingdom's coming, the Messiah's here, the great act has happened, He's been risen from He's been raised from the dead. It's time now, isn't it, Jesus? It's all over. When we open up, with, it's amazing to me that Luke opens Acts up with this story of the disciples not really being sure of what their task is. In fact, they're not even sure they have a task at this point because it just seems like God's enemies have been defeated. God's going to set up His kingdom all over the whole world. Is this the time, Jesus? It's amazing to me that Acts opens with a problem that is, that is a very similar problem to what we have in the church today. And that is, the church has a task, the disciples had a task, they don't don't know it at this point. But they have a task and they're not living it out. The issue for them at this point is theological. They think that that their task is is just to sit back and bask in the glory of what Jesus has done. They're just going to wait, all the enemies will be defeated, and the kingdom is going to be here. And they're just going to fight about what position they get in the kingdom of God. But our problem, instead of being a, a theological problem, it's a, it's, a, it's a heart problem. It's a discipleship problem. Because if you look around at a lot of our churches and a lot of our ministries, you wouldn't believe that we have a task before us. Luke is starting the story of Acts of how the church, the disciples, went out into the world and lived out the mission of God. And he opens up with the disciples not knowing that there's a mission. And we live often in in churches, and we ourselves are guilty of living as if there is no mission for us to live. Um, I've watched a a family member of mine bounce from church to church, and he'll stay about five to eight years in church, and he just gets frustrated. Frustrated. Because he, he keeps saying there's people out there that need the gospel. There's people out there that need love. There's people out there that need grace, that need compassion, that need mercy. And then, and then every week we just come and we go through the motions and we go through the same thing that we do every week. And it's like we're not even listening to the tasks that we have. And some of you, you might have felt that in the churches that you've been in. Um, there's a, 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 a theologian named Calvin Miller, and he said in one of his books, he said that people will put up with anything in a church except the absence of vitality, the absence of life. You'll put up with almost anything except a church or a ministry or a group of disciples who feel like they don't have any life in them. Some of you have been frustrated because you've been in the midst of groups like that. Some of you have been frustrated with yourself because you don't feel like you're living out the mission of God. And by the way, if, if, if you pay attention very carefully to Acts and to, the, to really all of Scripture, you were not designed to ignore God's call on your life. So it's not surprising to me that you would put up with almost anything except the absence of vitality. It's not surprising to me that you would be frustrated by living in a faith community where you feel like there's no purpose to it. And I think that Looking at this passage very carefully is important for us because what we're going to see is, is how does Jesus talk to these early disciples about what their task is? How does he define it for them? And what's interesting is how does how does he push them out in that way? And it's only a few verses, but I think it's so important for us because we often live as if there's no task. And the book of Acts starts with this very story in which Jesus takes the disciples who don't think there's a task before them and He tells them their task and then He kind of gives them a nice little kick in the butt out into the world. And I said last week that if we listen to what Luke has to tell us, that it will shape us. And this is one of those passages that we need to listen to. So, what is? uh, there's only two things I really want you to see about the task that he gives. Uh, And I want you to look at verse 7. So they asked Jesus this question. In verse 6, you know, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, his response to that, he didn't say, no, you guys are idiots, no, there's no kingdom. By the way, he'd been talking to them about the kingdom, Right? He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. So, disciples, here's what you don't need to know. You don't need to know when this is going to happen. You don't need to know when this task is going to be completed. What do, what do they need to know? He says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want to start with the second part of verse 8. He says, You will be my witnesses. What do you think he means by that? What does it mean to be a witness? I'm sorry. Yeah, someone who gives evidence in court. Along the same lines, someone who gives their personal um, accounts and eyewitness of whatever they saw. Yeah, their personal account, their eyewitness of of whatever they saw. And and what did they see? When he says, you're going to be my witnesses, what are they witnessing to? King Jesus is alive. King Jesus is alive. These are all right answers. It's just me, just getting you to brainstorm. If they were wrong, I would tell you they're wrong, huh? The miracles, the miracles, the things that Jesus did. That there is a kingdom coming. That there is a kingdom coming. Yeah, the kingdom of God is, is at hand. Jesus preached that, and they continue this. So the disciples are told that they're to go out and be witnesses. The Greek is martyreo. It's you know, we get the word martyr from it, which we uh, you know now means someone who's been killed for the faith. But think about why they started using that word that way. Because if you're willing to die for what Jesus taught, isn't that one of the best witnesses, the best testimonies to its truth? So you guys are going to go out and you're going to testify. You're going to be all witnesses. You're going to preach. You're going to tell people about what you've seen. You're going to tell people about what you've experienced in your life. But notice the geographical extent of this. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. To all the ends of the earth, and, and that phrase is so important because let's go Isaiah forty nine six if, if this works. Uh, he, he says it is notice this it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Israel, uh, of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. Notice I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So, God wants His people to take His message to the ends of the earth, to everyone, not just to the Jews, not just to those in Jerusalem, not just to those in Judea, but to everyone. And when He sits and He says that to them, think, of, think about what this task is. The task He puts before the church is you're going to be a witness to all these geographical locations. And by the way, it's open-ended, the ends of the earth. And uh, if, if you know Acts well enough, this is kind of the the, um, the outline of Acts. It goes to Jerusalem, then they go out to Judea, then to Samaria, then they're sent out all in and scat- in scattered throughout um, the, the ends of the earth. But I want you to think as, uh, so, uh, quickly about the locations. Jesus is with them. He was with them for how many days after the resurrection? Forty. Forty. Okay, this is towards the end, likely. So what has just happened, roughly like, 43 days before. When he says, you're going to be all witnesses to Jerusalem. What do they think about when they think about Jerusalem? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. I mean, isn't it amazing that when he stands up and he says this, this isn't just like, you know, an exciting kind of pep rally. We're all going to go out into the world, and we're going to share. Uh, you're going to share um, with everybody about me. It's you guys. Remember a few days ago, we were in that town, and everybody gathered around, and they wanted me dead. And you were hiding, and you were scared, and you wouldn't even admit that you were my disciples. You're going to go there and tell them about me. And if you remember the story of Jerusalem, uh, uh, of the crucifixion, who was crying out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" The Jews. The people who had come in from the countryside. You're going to go to the countryside. And you're going to witness to them. Who, who are the Samaritans? It's a little bit tougher question, but does anybody know? People who were birthed, where they, you know, father and mother was one Jew and one Gentile? Yeah, so historically there's kind of a, a, a mix Jew and Gentile. And they've kind of kept a, kind of a hybrid of the faith. And, and, um, and there was a lot of animosity. A lot of animosity. Um, between the Jews and the Samaritans and so when he says the Samaritans this isn't just a nice people group next to them this are going to be people that you have grown up to hate your mission is to be a witness to me to the very ethnic group the very people that you were raised to despise and, were, and to think were less than you and what did the ends of the earth mean? What is if, if you're a disciple these guys are from Galilee they fished for a living they're not world travelers. What did, what what do they think about the ends of the earth? I'm sorry. What? Spain. So Spain. So we know Paul wanted to go to Spain, but it's more broadly. Who who's in the ends of the earth? Possibly China. China. Okay. So yeah. Uh, just just more general. It's like Gentiles. Gentiles. Yay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, not Jews. Okay, so if you're a Jew and you're being told that you're going to go out to the Roman Empire, to the people that have conquered our nation. They grew up hearing stories about revolts against the Romans and brutally, that were brutally put down. People whose heads were, uh, were chopped off. People who were killed because they resisted the Romans. And he says, you're going to be all witnesses to those people. What I want you to realize at this very beginning with these frightened disciples that when Jesus looks at them when they don't even know their task and he doesn't just give them this nice little easy task he gives them a task that if they take it at face value it is a frightening terrifying task. You're going to go to the people that killed me you're going to the people that hated me you're going to go to the people that you grew up hating and you're going to go to the people that, that oppressed your nation and you're going to witness to me. This task that he gives them is going to change their life. It's going to take them out of their comfort zone. He's not talking about their preferences. They didn't sit down and do a career profile, and uh, and He figures out, here's where you should live. You're going to go to people who want you dead, to people that you might want dead, and you're going to witness to me. What's remarkable to me about this is if if you fast forward a year or two years or three years or five years or ten years or twenty years and you talk to the people who are sitting there listening to Jesus where He says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and you ask them to start talking about their life, the only way you would understand their life is if you understood their mission. The only way. Where do you live? What do you do for a living? Who are you hanging out with? How are you spending your time? Why were you beaten? (laughs) The only way you could understand the lives of the early disciples as it unfolds in Acts is if you understand this mission that God gave them, that Christ gave them. Because this will shape their lives from this moment forward. Can the same be said about you? Could someone get to know you really well without understanding the mission that Jesus gave you as a disciple? Could someone understand why you live where you live? Why you work in the types of jobs you work with? Why you're part of the social groups you're a part of? Could they understand that without understanding this task that's put before you? Because when Jesus says this to the disciples, He expects their lives to be changed. He expects their life to be turned upside down. And and, and here's something that's interesting to me about this. Uh, One scholar calls this a command promise. Command promise. And here's why. Because Jesus tells them to do this, and He's also kind of promising He's going to make them do this. You'll see this start to unfold, but the church doesn't want to live this out the disciples don't want to live this out they want the kingdom to come quickly they don't want to go to the place that killed Jesus and be a witness and God's going to make them go to place after place after place I would bet if we open up the floor and I won't I would bet that a lot of you would have stories about how you were reluctant to witness to Christ but God was going to hold you to that like God promised that He was going to make you live out this command and He was going to put someone in your, kind of in front of you. I can tell you how many times I've just been going... I can't you how many times I didn't want to talk to somebody and they finally talked to me and I have to, I have to share the gospel. <laughs> all right? I'm a minister. I'm paid to share the gospel. I'm paid to pray and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there are still times where I'm like, you know, I, I'm in a coffee shop and I don't want to talk to this person and they just start asking me about why, what are you reading? I'm like, the Bible. Uh, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> You should buy your own. They give them out. <laughs> yeah, hotels. And, uh, and, and they're like, are you a Christian? Yeah. You know? and, and then finally I'm like, okay, maybe God wants me to talk to this person. <laughs> right? Because when God gives us this task, He promises that you're going you're gonna, to um, live it out. If you're wanting to follow God, He will put these things in, in, your, in your place. This isn't just kind of marching orders for the church. And the reason I want to start here is that I want you to realize, if you're hearing this, how frightening this must be. Right? you go to the ends of the earth, to people that speak all different languages. Because God wants all the world to praise Him. He wants praise to come to Him from all different languages. And if you're a disciple who days before, you couldn't even own up that you you were a follower, that you were hiding away while the women were at the cross, not ashamed of Christ... And he says, you're going to go to all these places and witness, what what are you thinking in your heart of hearts? There's no way. There's no way I'm going to do that. And notice that the task is given after Jesus talks to him about the Spirit. He says in verse 8, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of God. Uh, my Father promised which you have heard me speak... Oh, sorry. My eyes jumped. Uh, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times of date the Father is set by His own authority, but you will receive, the po- you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why does He start talking at this moment about the Holy Spirit? It's because... The Holy Spirit is going to be the power that, that sends the church and enables the church and equips the disciples to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Just another another kind of theological question: Who is the Holy Spirit? That's easy. <laughs> it's God. Kind of classical formations. He's the third person of the Trinity. What else? What, what does he do in the Scriptures? He moves people, empowers, empowers. empowers. I'm sorry, convicts. He convicts, Undwells. indwells, I heard something else, Comfort. comforts. In the Old Testament it used to go to only very specific people. Yeah, it used to go to only very specific people. And by the way, in the Old Testament it also prophesies that when the last days come you'll get the Spirit. So this is another big thing for them, right? That this is this, the prophecy of being fulfilled. But when, the, when, the, when uh, Genesis opens up, Genesis chapter 1, what is the Spirit doing? Hovering. And then God speaks in the Hebrew just like the Greek uh, for breath and, and, and spirit and all this. And wind is very similar. I mean the same word. And God created the world through His Spirit. The Spirit's forming things. In Ezekiel, in the valley of dry bones, it's the Spirit of God. He breathes on it. It's the Spirit of God that brings people to life. And the reason I bring that up to you is, is notice what He's promising them. That the very Spirit through which God created the world, the very Spirit through which God was going to bring life to dead people, is the Spirit that the church now has for its task. Acts never separates your possession of the Holy Spirit from your call to live out the task that Jesus gave them. It's so closely connected here that it's almost like the reason He gave them the Spirit was so they could fulfill a task that was much bigger than them. What does it tell you that he has the Spirit here? Like, what's the significance of the Spirit being given to them kind of for the, for the mission? What does that tell you about the mission? This is a very simple point. I've already said it a couple of times. God's backing it. God's backing it. But what does it tell you that, God, that we need God to back it? It's going to be hard. I don't know who said that, but I'm just pointing in this general direction. He said, okay, Leo. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult mission. It's almost like he's looking at them and he's telling them that that if, if you're living out this mission, if you're really following this through, then the only way you're going to be able to do it is by the empowerment of God. And kind of the flip side of that is if your life as a disciple, if the things you're engaged in for the kingdom of God are so easy that you can handle it, then you're not living out the task that God's given you. You're not living out the mission that God's given His church. The mission God gave His church is so difficult that you have to have the Spirit. You have to have the Spirit guiding you. Notice, it's not about intelligence. I said this last week. Almost everyone in this room that grew up in in a church setting knows more about Christian theology than these disciples did. But that doesn't matter because they're not going to go out and convince people because they're brilliant. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, say, look, wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send a few people to you to train you on how to share the gospel. We're going to get down really fast, like a 30-second gospel presentation. I've got some pamphlets you can give them. It's going to go great if you just put them on the windshield. They'll have to read it, and then they'll all convert, and then the you know, pagans will come worship God. He didn't say that. Notice that when he starts talking about living out the mission, he doesn't talk about strategy or techniques or classes or even knowledge. He talks about being empowered. If you haven't been in a spot, if you haven't been talking to somebody or helping somebody, where you felt like the thing I need at this moment is not more knowledge, it's not a smoother pitch, but what I need at this moment is the power of God. If you've been at that moment, then you have been living on a mission, then you've been fulfilling the task that God's given you. I've set a cross for a person who's starting to kill themselves. Him or herself, multiple people. And I didn't think in that moment, man, if I just had the right thing to say. What I thought in that moment is, I need God to keep this person alive. I sat across from a girl who was depressed because a guy broke her heart. My old ministry. And she could not come around. She was our biggest leader. She couldn't come around. And I talked to her 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 and I talked to her. And, I talked to her. and you know what? Nothing I said mattered and i 'm really, really comforting and, and, and like brilliant when it comes to counseling, like if i couldn 't do it, no one could right I hope you are laughing because you know it 's true uh, and and i 'm sitting there and I, I, I promise meeting I promise you this was, this was almost two years of this girl crying almost every day of her life, not wanting to come around the ministry, one of our biggest leaders. But when I started that job, I could count on two people being at a Bible study her and her roommate, right? And now she won't even come, right? That was, I lost 50% of my ministry, right? And, uh, and, and, and I just talked to this girl, and it just got to the point. It was early oh, in my ministry, and I just, I just remember thinking, I can do nothing for her. Because I need God in that moment. I've sat with Muslims. Talking about Jesus, and, and they just ask the same questions. I'm trying to explain it. And I'm like, no matter how, how you know, the diagrams are drawn on the board, and I show them some scripture, and tell them the Greek, and show them you know, philosophical arguments, they're not getting it. Because I don't need my knowledge or my you know, smooth presentation. I need God to work in their lives. And if you talk to missionaries, you will hear that they get thrown into situations almost every day where it's not about their intelligence, it's not about their training, it's not about any of that. It's about them needing the power of God to live out the mission. That's the type of task that God's put before us. That's the type of mission that He's given the church. When 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 we sit in churches that all we gotta figure out to do is how just to order the songs differently, then something's wrong with that. Because you don't need the Spirit for that. You don't need the Spirit to figure out how how to do a great PowerPoint, right? You don't even need Skylar. But you need the Spirit when you're going out to a world that doesn't know God, a world that's broken, a world that needs to hear the gospel, but doesn't want to hear it, a world that if Jesus was in their presence, most of them would want to kill Him. That's when you need the power of God. That's what Jesus expects of His disciples. And so the burden, the burden of the task that He's given the church is that we're going to go to all the world so that people will praise God in all different languages, and it would be so tough that there's no way that we can do it on our own ability or our own power. We will need the very creative force of the Holy Spirit, the empowering force of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to accomplish what Christ has given us. Do you feel the burden of that task? The disciples, He tells them this in verse 9, He tells them this. I promise we're drawing to a close. He tells them this. He said... And he's... And... They still don't get it. Listen to this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, a cloud. And a cloud hid him from their sight. And this is probably... If you know the Old Testament, it's probably the Shekinah, the the cloud of glory, the cloud that that designated the presence of God. And Jesus is taken up from them. Now... We just read that and it's like Luke's just throwing in cool information. But Here's what you need to know. Luke's already told us that at the end of Luke. Why does he repeat it here? I'm not going to go back and, and reread and make you read this story in 2 Kings. But, but you understand that in the Old Testament there's several places where people are taken up off the earth into the heavens. And one of them involves Elijah. And Elijah's disciple, he had a disciple that followed him around and learned from him. Whose name was? Elisha, which confuses all of us, right? Spirit could have made it easier on us, but He didn't. And so Elijah and Elisha, they're walking together, and Elijah says, God's going to take me up to heaven. And Elijah's like, I don't want you to. I'd like to stay with you a little while longer. And Elijah's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And then, and then they're walking, and, and, and Elijah says, is there anything I can do for you? And get this, his disciple says, will you leave me a double portion of your spirit? And he says, sure. If that happens, he gives it kind of his condition, what he'll know. And they're walking, and he takes his cloak, and he rolls it up, and, and they come upon a river, and he hits it, and the river parts, and they're able to cross on dry land. And then when they get on the other side, kind of fire comes up, and a chariot of fire takes him away, a, a chariot of wind takes him away. And then Elijah is left there by himself. And he has to roll, and he, he, the cloak's lying there. He picks it up, and he rolls it up, and he turns around, and he goes back to this river and he strikes it. And the river parts. And he walks through. What's going on in that story? Is that you have a disciple that doesn't want his master to leave. And when his master leaves, he gives him the spirit. When the master ascends into heaven, he gives him the spirit. Why? So that his disciple can continue his task With the very power that he had. And Elisha goes and he redoes the miracle that Elijah had just done to show that he had the power. When scholars look at that, they they, they realize that what's going on in the ascension is not just a cool story, but it's a message for the church because the disciples are sitting there gazing. You've got to realize that Jesus just left. This is the first real time that they're actually alone to live out the task that God gave them. They're alone. They're frightened. They're gazing up. You have to picture it. It's like, it's like they're just standing there staring. God's given them a task. He said, you're going to get the Spirit. And they're just waiting. I promise I won't tell a story about my kids every week. But um, this morning, but by the way, like, uh, Napoleon invaded Russia with how many? Th- hundreds of thousands? Like, what was it? 400,000 or something? So we'll go with that. Uh, something like that. A lot of people. And I promise you, I promise you, it was logistically easier to get all those men across Europe into Russia, and then to get two kids into the car on the morning to get them to school. Like, is that difficult? And, and, my, and my son, Owen, he is so ADD, so ADD. And he's walking out, and I'm like, every morning I'm like, go get in the car, go get in the car, go get in the car. And, he, and he's walking out, and, he gets, and he, he gets like to the front of my car, and he looks at the neighbor's yard, who every morning has a sprinkler, every morning has a sprinkler in the yard. He goes, <gasps> I was like, what? He's like, a sprinkler. I'm like, Owen, oh, get in the car. And I go back inside <laughs> take my coffee cup, and I come back. And I start to get in and I realize that he's standing on the other side of the car, just staring. <laughs> just gazing at the sprinkler. I'm like, oh, and you see this every morning. Get in the car. He's like, But daddy, they have a sprinkler. I'm like, what And so you get the picture of that, just as like he's just gazing at the sprinkler, so the disciples are just gazing. Like there's nothing to do. Let's just gaze at what Jesus has gone into heaven. And what happens? They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from, taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen Him go into heaven. What scholars recognize is, go, what is going on here is that Jesus ascends, not because it's this nice, neat sight for the disciples to stare at, because it's, it's kind of the final thing before He passes off His mission to them. And when the angels come here to say, stop staring, it's not just because you know, their, their, their mouths were open, it was just embarrassing sight, it's because the angels came to tell them, guys, He's left you a mission. He's leaving you His Spirit. Get on with it. The angels appeared here to, to, to press on the burden of the task that Jesus has left. It's time for you to get busy. It's time for you to start acting upon This vision, this task, this mission that God has given you that's bigger than you. And to push them out into the world. My question for you is, do do you have a big enough vision of your task as a disciple in college? Or are you metaphorically stuck gazing at the sky waiting for Christ to return? Do you get the the magnitude of what Christ has given you, of what Christ has called you to, of the mission that God has left you? Remember, it's life-changing. It's life-shaping. It's so uncomfortable and difficult that you have to have the very power and presence of God in your life to do it. And my question is, is that how you see your discipleship in your time in college? Because I know this is a hard saying, but Jesus said a lot of hard sayings, and I think I'm taking this from the Scriptures, that if that's not the case, then your discipleship is falling far short of what Jesus has called it to um, We put up the last quote, scholar. This is from William Williman. He says, One reason why so many of our churches praise a rather trivial, allegedly concerned, but essentially an act of God, rather trivial, allegedly concerned, but essentially an act of God, is that they haven't attempted... Anything, notice, is so bold and brash that they risk utter embarrassing failure unless the first Easter women were right and Jesus Christ has really really has risen from the dead. Notice that he takes this question of mission and he makes it into a question about your God. Do you believe that your God is active? Do you believe that your God is so much at work in your life, has such a great call on your life, That the very thing that's put before you is a task so great of such large magnitude that it would be a risk, that you would risk utter failure here at college. I don't mean grades. If you tried to live it out. Is that the case for you? Is that the shape of your discipleship? Is that what your life looks like? it's God trying to kind of stand beside you and say, why are you staring into the heavens? Get on with it. Because our task is huge. And we are at a unique place in our lives where people from all over the world are here. And it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me that the mission is the disciples go out into all the world. And what's happening is the world's coming to us. By the way... A hundred years ago, if I would have stood up in almost any church and said, Guys, I got this great plan for missions, let me give it to you, is that we'll get all the other countries to send students here and pay for them to be close to us so we can show the gospel so we don't have to go far. You would have all thought I was stupid. But you know what's happened? That's happened. When Jesus is going to all the earth See, go to all the people, all the different languages, because the the vision of the Bible is that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Every language. I mean, God will be prayed to in every language. And we're going to end tonight in a way to symbolize that. The opportunity before you is great. The power within you is great. And the only question is, are you willing to follow Jesus when he pushes you into a task that's much larger than you? But it's not larger than the God who, wrote, who raised him from the dead.